following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Morning. <clears throat> My name is Scott Smith, and uh, now I'm going to get to things that are a little more familiar to me. Um, human beings, from what I'm told, enjoy stories. Uh, are there any human beings here this morning? I see one, uh, a couple there. Do any of you human beings enjoy stories? Excellent. Okay. Then this is, if not, this would have been awkward. Um, so there's love stories, sci-fi, uh, mysteries, history, documentaries, long-form video games, narrative board games. There's all kinds of stories, things that, things that, uh, that people like to take part in. And there's even things that we don't think of as stories that are stories. Uh, take politics. Uh, the, the table is set with a protagonist and a whole row of antagonists. And there's a mission laid out and a plot. There's victories and defeats that will follow. Passion, intrigue, maybe corruption. Hard to imagine. Um, virtue, good guys, bad guys. It's a story. Politics is a story. People follow it. Sometimes even if they don't really care about what's going on, they, they may follow for the story. Uh, sports is not that much different even. Uh, most people I know don't merely tune in to dispassionately, dispassionately examine a match. Um, most of the time, they have their guys that they're following, and they probably know the enemy uh, at least as well, if not better. They know the personal lives of the players. They have the backstories of the coaches and the teams, and they, they know everything that's going on because it's, it's important, from what I hear. Uh, I'm not a sports person, but it's another story. It's not just watching a ball move around. It is that, but it's a lot more. Um, I think people follow other things, like court cases on TV, um, for the same reason. We like to follow the story arc. We like to see how things develop. If you're not familiar with the term, that's all story arc means. It means we recognize that stories have a beginning and an ending and an arc in between them, something that connects the dots to get us from the beginning to the end. And they have climaxes and builds and letdowns and resolutions. But that's a narrative arc or a story arc. In stories, we see conflict and resolution. Um, and we hope that conflicts in real life will end in real life resolution. That's part of the appeal of stories. We know that the problems are real, and we hope that justice is just as real. So there's many types of stories and many reasons for people to like them. But people like stories. Um, I grew up before Netflix which is hard to believe. I mean, well, there was the DVDs that you'd order, you know, but before that, there was no Netflix at all. Um, back then, timing was a big deal. I had to make sure that I was home at a certain time and had a certain channel on to watch something. This is foreign to you if you're, if you're younger than me. This is just... It's not a thing anymore, which boggles me. Um, well, I should say, I'm watching t TVs on a movie because I was cheap. But, uh, so I checked TV Guide to find out these details so I would know when to tune in because I wanted to make sure I saw the show that I was looking for. Uh, anyone else remember that? There's a few people as old as I am. Okay, good. Um, surprised someone there. Uh, um, so thinking back to these times, have you ever watched or started to watch a movie after the beginning, you know, you get home late or you're making popcorn or whatever and you walk in and, oh, nuts, it's already on. Okay, maybe it's just me. I plan poorly, I guess. But you get there after the beginning, you miss something important and from then on, you're just forever confused. Does this ever happen? I mean, some shows it's not like this, but others, you try watching, it's like, I have 
no idea what's going on or what kind of show this even is. I missed something important. Um, I considered showing a video clip just without any context or explanation just to kind of make the point, but I think you get it. It's important to catch the kickoff, I'm told, or the opening of a movie. That's not a time to go get popcorn. Um, or it, You want to get the season premiere of a new show. If you don't see the beginning, you're going to miss a lot. You're, you're probably going to misunderstand the rest of the story that follows. Sometimes you can get away with missing the beginning, um, but it will still change your understanding. Take Star Wars. You might presume that like Star Trek or any other star things, uh, these movies in space, that it takes place hundreds or thousands of years in the future when their people are part robot and they're all different colors and all. I mean, it's just way in the future. Um, because that's how it seems, because so many are like that. But what are the first words of the opening crawl in Star Wars? A long time... See, there's, I know there's people that know this. Um, <laughs> a long time ago. This isn't in the future. So, sometimes missing part of the story doesn't entirely break the story, but it causes enough hiccup in it that you end up seeing or understanding a different story than was intended. Uh, since we're talking about shows, and now that Netflix is part of our lives, this changes the experience. I can't tell you how many times I've been watching a movie and then realized I fell asleep for part of it. This is just how I watch TV, I guess. Uh, since it's Netflix, and because I can, I'll often rewind it to the last thing I remember. Um, then I fall asleep again. Uh, that's just what I do. Ask my wife. It's, if we're watching it together, it's quite frustrating uh, for her. During one show recently, though, um, I, I recently watched the whole season, not in one sitting, close, but uh, I watched this show, and I fell asleep so many times, and in so many episodes, I completely lost count. I don't know. I, I just was, uh, I, I couldn't keep track anymore of how much I had missed, so at some point, I just stopped rewinding, because nothing looked familiar, and I didn't want to go back to the season premiere, so, so I just gave up. Um, so rather than backing up again, because this season is going to take four seasons real life to watch, I resigned myself to the fact that there would be things that would confuse me and I'd have to just go with it. I just, that's all I could do. But I got to tell you, this affected my experience. It made the show different than I imagined they intended it to be uh, for me. So wh when I finished the season, I still enjoyed the show, but my understanding of the plot had some real definite weak points. Uh, there's this one character who was always angry, and I'm still not sure why. Uh, I'm sure there's a reason that they said, but uh, there's another character that just had a whole lot of drive and passion for what he did. I'm, I'm not sure why, um, but he was. Uh, and there, at the beginning, this car was in good shape, and later it wasn't, so I missed something important there too. But I, mean, I still get the general idea. I enjoyed the show, but I'm missing enough important pieces of this puzzle that keeps me from properly understanding the show, at least as it was intended. So what does this have to do with church? I'm realizing recently that this is not much different to how I've grown up with the Bible. Uh, certainly not for any lack of teaching or exposure. I grew up in a good church with good parents. I had wonderful people all around me. Uh, Sunday school teachers and, and you name it, pastors and whatever, that, that gave me lots of information and every opportunity to learn. Not to say that the way it was presented was always perfect, because it never is. They just can't do that. But much of the problem is on me. Um, I often came in late to the show, so to speak. Uh, often I missed critical details and didn't bother going back to understand them properly. Some parts of the story became broken beyond any easy repair. 
Others just got scrambled in my mind because I missed some important detail and I had to make up the pieces to make it fit or just resign myself to the fact that these things are all in there and I don't know how they fit. Um, much of the problem is my making and, came from an in, and, and some of it came from an incomplete telling. But regardless what the source of the problem is, the burden to resolve it is mine. Does it make sense? We've, we've got this, and, and, and I don't think I'm alone. We have these ideas that may or may not be complete that we either live with and just hold this broken story and scratch our heads a lot, or we do the work to try and figure it out. Scripture was given to us as a whole, but I think that we rarely look at it that way, or at least I didn't used to. We take these, this combination of children's stories and life verses and devotionals and sermons we've heard and teachings, all these things that are meaningful and real, and we let them fill our minds without categories. They just go into a bin. But eventually, we have to act like a cold case detective. We crack open the file and pull out all these bits and pieces and, and write on post-its and tack them to the wall, start connecting them with string, and we build this complex network and call it the Bible. We've got it figured out. We're clumsy detectives, though. Uh, the only reason the Bible needed putting back together is because we took it apart. The Bible came to us as a whole, but rather than learning to see the narrative that's woven throughout, we disassembled it ourselves and then tried to solve a puzzle that we made. And worse, we sometimes treat the pieces as Legos, as if there's no wrong way to put them together. My problem wasn't really lack of exposure to the Bible, like I said. It's far from it. I had plenty of access. I knew the stories, but I think like many people, I was trying to assemble the puzzle without looking at the box top. Because of this lack of framework, the, the picture I came up with was slightly off. Uh, over the years, I've talked with so many people who have had the same experience. It, they put it in different words, but many recognize and admit the same experience of being confused by things um, and, and confused how other people see things differently. Um, many of them recognize and admit it, but others don't. And I think that's likely because they're just unaware. They don't realize that the picture they have isn't quite the picture the Bible intended to paint. But for those of us who see it in ourselves, it's unsettling. And we look at the puzzles we've been constructing from the pieces that we had, and we find these problems. So what do we do with these problems? And worse yet, what do we do when most of the people we talk to seem to have the same experience? They have a messed up puzzle too, and they may or may not know how it's confused. How do we solve it? Has anyone else ever run into this? Uh, you, you're not only in yourself, but you're talking to someone else, perhaps, and find out their picture that they're assembling looks different than yours, or that they have their idea of what the Bible is and the message it intends to tell is different from what you thought. Anyone ever thought that before? I have over and over and over. So the picture that we've constructed might be very similar to theirs because after all, we're using most of the same pieces, hopefully. Um, we may, some may be exposed to more than others, but we hopefully have the same pieces, but the way they're putting them together uh, differently causes us to have different final pictures in mind. Another issue that this, this raises is maybe, maybe we think things are a certain way in the world, that reality is a certain way because of how we've assembled our puzzle. What I mean is that story we've constructed from our pieces of the Bible lead us to hold a skewed view of reality, or it might hold us to have false exp uh, expectations of the future, or we have misunderstandings of the past, or incorrect assumptions about God, who he is, or what to expect from him. 
And some of these things may not be a big deal in some cases, but sadly, in too many, the puzzle under construction is quite unrecognizable. Uh, People sometimes have pieces upside down so they can't figure out how they fit in. You know, the edge ones give you a little bit of a clue, but others, I mean, they look similar. Uh, Especially when you get into the clouds, you know, they're the same colors. How do you put this all together? So, and another troubling thing is many of these puzzles are made from the same die, so you can get them mixed in from other puzzles. You can get two puzzles together that happen to fit, but shouldn't. Uh, So so maybe you're mixing in other pieces from other worldviews without even realizing it. It doesn't have to be this way, though. Uh, I'm not here to suggest we can perfectly assemble the puzzle of the Bible. After all, there are things that will remain mysteries forever, and that's okay. But what I will say is that we can do better. I know I can, because I've, I've found things recently that have helped me to do better at that, and I know that there are things we can do better than that. In addition, I've t- in talking to friends, reading, listening to things, I've, just, I've found so many other ways to look at this. And in talking to these, or referencing these, all these different sources that I've heard and, and seen and read, I've come across some observations that have changed the way that I view the Bible or put these pieces together or actually look at the pieces as part of the whole rather than turning it into a puzzle and trying to solve it. So I'm hoping some of these will help you too. As I mentioned, when I was a kid and, and, and well into my adulthood, I saw the Bible as a collection of stories, lessons, rules, that kind of thing. It's not that I doubted any of it. I never got to the point of rejecting it. Um, but it just became difficult or confusing for me to hold it all together. Like, what is the glue that this doesn't feel like a sci-fi or a documentary, or whatever. There's things that, that don't seem to fit. How do I fit the things that don't seem to fit? I, what's the unifying theme? What holds it all together? Is there some grand storyline that these all hang on? So, there's going to be a whole bunch of metaphors here that hopefully will make sense. And if they don't, just pretend, just smile, and, and that will help me think that you are following. Uh, imagine we're going to build a house. We, we've got a blueprint, and I say, okay, we're going to, I can't do all this myself. It's going to take a while, so I'm going to tear this window out, and I'm going to give it to Misty. Misty, here, make this window. I'm sure you'll do a good job. And I'll tear out a door, and part of the, you know, some of the shingles, give them to Hans. And I pass these things around, and, and Misty makes a wonderful window. And there's all these people make great, you know, furniture and doors and, 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 and shutters and all these things get put together right and, man, they're awesome. So let's put them all together in the house. Oh, I tore those plans up. Whoops, um, I should have kept one. Uh, nobody has this original that still has everything shown where it goes together. So now my house has a window upside down, another window is off to the left instead of the right, the door's on the wrong side of the house. It works, kind of. Uh, it's an odd place to enter the house, but you, you end up having something that was different uh, from what was designed. And it may function somewhat, or it might just be a total disaster, but it's not what the designer intended. Without a master plan, we might have all the perfect pieces in all the wrong places. More likely than that, though, we'll have imperfect pieces in all sorts of wrong places, because, it, and we won't know that we do, because we don't know how they all fit together as a whole. So in the end, we'll have an odd-looking house that isn't much good to anyone because it's put together incorrectly. So for a good part of my life, these things all remained compartmentalized. So I've got David and Goliath, the parting of the Red Sea, um, feeding the 5,000, a woman and a dragon, 
Um, there's tithing, the Proverbs 31 woman, spies in the promised land, beatitudes, a resurrection. There's a lot of things, right? And hopefully some of these are recognizable, sound familiar. But they, if I were to just say all these things as to somebody and say, the Bible is about this, they would think you had lost your mind. And these don't sound like things that go together. What holds them all together? On and on these things go, and we end up making, or at least I did, a, making a very odd-looking house, trying to paste things together that have been taken apart by me. And what's, what's even more difficult is I had a fairly accurate understanding of each of these individual pieces. I don't think I had any terribly uh, bad misunderstandings of the stories or lessons throughout. But the trouble is I didn't know where they went. Um, I mean, I could tell you where they were in the Bible. I could probably tell you the book and, and probably even a chapter for most of these things. Um, and I could even tell you on a timeline pretty close to where they occurred in history. That's not what I mean. What I'm, what I'm talking about is I didn't always know how they fit into God's story. He's got this narrative arc, this storyline that he's building, and these things all serve that greater storyline. They're not just put in there, you know, for Sunday school lessons or so we have, you know, like Aesop's fables or something, a whole collection of neat stories. We may treat them that way, but that's not what they're there for. They all build the whole together. And when I've got all these separate things and don't have a way to tie them together, it just makes a mess and I don't know what to do with it. So instead of a house, let's picture a bridge. A uh, bridge has an origin and a destination. This bridge represents a narrative arc. Uh, say the ends represent creation and the new creation, or the opening of Genesis and the close of Revelation. On one end, we have God's kickoff of reality, and on the other end, we see his desired goal, how he intends to wrap everything up. Everything between is details. And we, if we connect the dots, this will show us God's plan of how he's intending to arrive or how he will arrive at this final destination from where it all began. So, these stories I've talked about, um, uh, it's like looking at the micro level. If you think of camera lenses, uh, there's micro and macro. Or these, these are words that are used in other uh, disciplines as well. So micro is looking at small things and macro is kind of looking at big picture. The type of cable in a bridge, uh, how it's braided, the details of how each bolt and rivet get connected and where they go, these things are all crucial to the bridge's function. You need this to build a bridge. But if we're looking at these detailed drawings on their own and misunderstand what's being built, um, we could have all the details pretty close but end up building a swing set instead of a bridge because we need to know where they're all going and what the purpose is at the end. So I want to step back from micro, back from these little stories, and look at the macro, the big picture. And then, ideally, we'll get, understand the big picture, and then we go back into the small details. But I think a lot of the times, we do it the other way around. One popular way of looking at the history laid out in the Bible is to identify the major turning points. Um, they're often stated as creation, our fall, redemption, and restoration. And I like this way of categorizing things. It gives us the four major themes of Scripture. Helps us understand where in the narrative we are. Um, just to review this quickly, creation talks about the fact that God is a creator and the rest of reality is his creation. There's two categories, only two. And one category is creator and one's creation. God's the only thing in it, it, that's, that's the creator, so everything else is creation. He created the earth and us and everything else. Creation is when everything came to be. Shortly after that, those who were created rebelled against their creator. 
The peace and harmony shared between them was broken. The fall is how we describe the loss of innocence through humanity's treason against her king. But not all hope was lost. God determined that humanity's fall was not to be the final word. A price was due for the sins of men, but God himself was to provide that payment. A covenant, made was, a covenant was made between God the Father and his Son. Redemption refers to the mission that Jesus willingly undertook at the Father's bidding, which resulted in the salvation of those who would believe. Jesus' death was not the end of the story, though. For those who truly put their trust in Christ, there is reconciliation with God. Through the work of God the Holy Spirit, the brokenness that was brought by the sin, brought in the fall, is mended. Some of this happens in this life, but it's all completed by the next life. So restoration is God's work in the Christian, where the benefits of Jesus' payment for sin is applied to our lives, and all of creation is brought back into God's perfect plan. So there you have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And that, that serves as a good starting template for how we can start to understand scripture, the, big, the grand story arc. Um, it's also a good way to help remember the gospel. And the gospel is something we would all do well to have reinforced. Uh, I've heard some people say, too many people say, we don't need to say the gospel all the time in church because you've heard the gospel, so you're saved, so let's just move on. The gospel is for everyone, especially believers, because it's what carries us on. Uh, It's not just a way to get people out of hell. It's a way of life. And unfortunately, the surveys show that many Christians are unable to give a good explanation of what the gospel is. If we don't know what it is, that makes it difficult to tell others. The gospel is not that Jesus loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. There may be some truth there, but that's not the gospel that's taught in scripture. The shortest accurate version I've heard is God saves sinners. Uh, And our four themes help us to flesh out what it means for God to save sinners. So you talk about sinners. Well, who are sinners? What's a sinner? Well, people that were created, they are sinners, all of the people, including us. Well, what makes them sinners? They didn't start that way. What happened is in the fall, our guilt makes us all enemies of God. Well, if God saves sinners, how does he do that? In Christ's death, we are redeemed and restored. So just through understanding God saves sinners and knowing this four-part, uh, four-part formula of what makes up the storyline of Scripture, that helps us understand the major plot turns uh, that will help us understand the story of the Bible and the good news of the gospel. But for today's discussion, as I've mentioned, I don't want to get stuck on these little details, looking at rivets and how the welds are put in. I want to look at the whole bridge. So we're going to zoom out. Sometimes people talk about getting caught in the weeds. Anyone else use that? Uh, phrase or, or heard it. So it usually means you're getting so focused on the details, you're getting, you're getting mired in, um, in things that don't matter or that are, that are too fine and you need to just back up and look at the whole picture. When I hear getting stuck in the weeds, I picture a boat's motor, uh, the prop, getting all tangled up in weeds. Um, but by contrast, I'm asking that we zoom our camera way, way out. So we're out of the weeds, out of the water, uh, up far, far away until only the major features are visible. You might call this the view from 20,000 feet. We're looking from an airplane now. Uh, you can't see the weeds from a plane. You, you can't even see the boat probably, or maybe even the lake it's in. You're seeing the bigger picture. And there's other things, other details we can talk about later. But if we get hung up on minor details in a story, we'll miss the point. Some examples. 
If I focus on the fact that lasers don't make sounds or that sounds can't be heard in space, uh, I'm going to lose track of who is fighting and why. That's for special people here. You'll know who you are. Um, <clears throat> if I'm hung up, this is one that I wasn't aware of until I accidentally looked it up, and there's an endless amount of the internet um, applied to this. But apparently, potatoes didn't exist in Middle Earth. But Middle Earth didn't exist, so I don't know how we know that. But anyway, if we get hung up, like many people online do, with the fact that potatoes did not exist in Middle Earth, and why are they in the storyline, we're going to miss all these important lessons, valuable lessons, woven throughout uh, all of the story that Tolkien laid out in Lord of the Rings. Um, if I'm too focused on a few puzzle pieces in front of me, I'm going to make a train that is part horse. Have you guys seen these things? People have accidentally mix their puzzles together and a lot of them from the same manufacturer have the same die so they fit together and he does it for fun but I think we do it accidentally a lot of times. Um, if I'm too hung up on who Cain married or who the 144,000 are or what, Dan what diet Daniel ate or what prayer Jabez prayed, I'm going to miss the whole point of scripture. Does that make sense? Similar. I don't mean to diminish any of these topics. These are all important topics that are worth talking about. And I've spent countless hours talking about many of these things and even more minute, boring things myself. But there's, there's, while there is absolutely a time for focusing on these details, um, that's only after the major themes have been established. Otherwise, it's just going to be a mess. We're just going to make a puzzle that's more and more confusing, and we risk building a story that is different from the one God intended to deliver. So if, if we're looking at a narrative arc, like I said, uh, like all good stories, the Bible has a beginning and an end, and uh, and these, this connecting story. But if you've read the beginning and end of the Bible, and I mean the very beginning, and probably all of you have set out to read the whole Bible, which means you've read the beginning, and then you get to maybe numbers, and that gets sketchy. But, but you know, you, you read the beginning, the very beginning, first few chapters of Genesis, last few chapters of Revelation, and there is some crazy sounding stuff there. I mean, things they used, what is this talking about? Jewels, and I, I don't understand all this. This... What I want to do is look past that and look at the major themes in those passages. Not ignoring those things because those are important to come back and understand why those are there. But if we don't know what the big picture is, they won't matter. So if we use my bridge metaphor, the ends are the original creation and the new creation. In between, we can identify the connecting structure of fall, redemption, and restoration. Then with this structure in place, we can start laying in the rest of the story of how God wove history together in real time. And once we see it in this light, we can see that from the beginning of Genesis, God had the close of Revelation in mind the whole time. The books and authors between the beginning and end each did their part to connect the Bible in the storyline that God intended to tell. Um, the play was so artfully crafted that each scene within could be told as a story of its own. And we do. And these are some of the bits that we've extracted. Um, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it adds confusion. But when we see them in the grand narrative, each of these are shown to be little vignettes that together are, are, are scenes in the play that, that woven together, they move the story along to see the whole picture. So for another metaphor, you might compare scripture to music. Sometimes I get a memorable hook of a catchy song in my head, and it's usually not an enjoyable thing. Uh, and these days, it is usually something that my three-year-old watches, which makes for a very troubling time at work. Um, but uh, the, 
the hook alone that you remember from a song gets stuck in your head usually isn't something that can stand on its own. It's not usually terribly meaningful or interesting by itself. That's why when you hear it over and over in your head, you just are driven nuts. It, the hook is a piece of the whole that hopefully, when put together, tells a story that the songwriter crafted. He had this story intended to tell, and this hook is just part of that. An important element for sure, but not as important as the song itself. Uh, think about classical music. The orchestra often introduces a theme in the beginning. So the one that always comes to mind is Beethoven's Fifth. You guys have heard this, right? A lot of classical music fans here. Dun, 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 dun. Sort of, kind of, a commercial. Um, so that, that's kind of the theme, the, the, the main theme throughout Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Uh, but then you, it's reintroduced and you hear other things. Different pitches, different speeds. Dun, 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 dun. Different instruments. It's passed around. The same, you recognize it even though every time it's different, right? It's always different, but you still see it. If you're paying attention. I guess if you're just listening to the background, you might not. But um, a theme is usually introduced in the beginning. It changes, but you recognize this repeated strain is carried along by different instruments at different tempos, echoed with variations. Uh, it will ultimately be reconstituted into a climax at the end that soars in this grand culmination the composer had in mind back from the beginning. In this way, the Bible is very much like a master symphony. There are these themes that are used over and over to tell the story that at the end you go, oh, I get it now, if you understand the big picture. The Bible is also similar to a play. Uh, the key players are God and man. There are supporting roles of supernatural creatures as well as beasts of the field and the, the air and the sea. Uh, the story is set in the ancient Near East. It starts in a very small part of that area called a garden, but then it moves and expands until it's the talk of the entire Roman Empire. Uh, one of the earliest conversations between a creature and created sets up the storyline, and it contains the instruction to remain loyal. This is what I ask of you. You can do just about anything you want. Stay loyal to me. Um, shortly after that, one of the first actions is rebellion. This sets up the conflict that consumes the rest of the story. I mean, that tells you just one of the patterns that you're going to see repeated throughout Scripture. The place where God and man first meet is the garden. Later, they'll meet on mountaintops, in tabernacles, and in temples. But the primary function of each is the same. There are places in the story where heaven and earth meet, and interaction between the creature and the creator is possible. So, if we're just seeing these as mountaintops and gardens, whatever, it can just be one long story. But if you notice that there's a theme here, this, these all represent the same thing. These are places where this interaction is possible. You start to notice it as a theme. From there, the story takes off until it culminates in a new creation with a new garden. And this is in the end of, of, uh, of, Gen of Revelation. This is no accident. The story ends where it began. And in between these, new, or these two creations are a number of recurring themes. So like these melodic strains that are woven throughout an orchestration, the Bible uses recognizable refrains that come up repeatedly. And once you know them, they're tough to miss. So if we're going to understand scripture properly, it helps to be on the lookout for these repetitive themes. We also need to see each part in the way that it serves the whole rather than looking at it just on its own. And in fact, we find out that much of Scripture exists for the purpose of telling this big story. 
Avengers Endgame, of all things, does a good job showing this. Uh, numerous, uh, no spoilers, I don't think, so it's okay. Plus, it's been long enough, really. Um, <clears throat> numerous storylines are pulled together and resolved in one amazing finale. Uh, if you've seen it, you get what I'm saying. I, I was going to mention some of them, but I won't. But there's all these things that when I watched this movie, I went, and I, I'm not a huge comic guy. I mean, I like him, kind of. But I watched this, and I, I loved Endgame. I got to the end and went, oh, this is like 20, number 22 of the Marvel stories, and so many stories, the storylines are pulled together into one finale, and you go, oh, that's why they did this. That's why they introduced this character years ago. That's why this guy had this habit. That's why they keep on talking about this guy's uh, his, um, his relationship with his dad. All these things are resolved in one story at the end, and it makes you think, maybe this was intentional. Maybe they actually planned this and wanted to tell us something all along, and it wasn't just a bunch of entertainment. Um, it struck me watching the movie that this was a good illustration of how the end of a story can make clear things that were previously hidden and put right so many plot lines that seemed unresolved. In similar fashion, when scripture is allowed to interpret scripture, when we know this grand narrative, and when we look for the recurring themes, we see things that we might have missed before. I'll just give a few examples. In the beginning, God declares his creation good. This is the idea of shalom, which means completion or perfection or peace. Shortly after that, humans chose to follow... Uh, to, Humans choose folly over wisdom. They leave God's shalom and enter a life of unrest. So this struggle between restlessness and perfect rest surfaces repeatedly in the narrative. You know the promised land? The, the land of rest? People talking about going to heaven where they will rest in between their struggle? You see this over and over. The serpent in the garden points out that our existence began with cowering to a beast and that the farther we run from God, the more beastly we ourselves become. Will we live like beasts or will we image God? Whether we receive true wisdom by fearing God or pursue a counterfeit on our own is a major theme of scripture as well. Whether two trees in the garden or two metaphorical women in the writings of Solomon, there's this choice between wisdom and folly that we see in different figures of speech and different themes. But if you're you don't have to look that hard, but if you pay attention, this theme of choose wisdom, don't be a fool, is throughout Scripture. The same theme over and over. Moses isn't in the Bible to teach us about handling our own Red Sea moments. He's there to show us what it looks like to shepherd a people, to plead with God on their behalf, and ultimately lead them to safety. And all, and that, sorry, and all that is so we'll recognize that Jesus is the true shepherd, the true mediator, and a true savior who will lead us to a better covenant. David isn't in the Bible to show us that we can defeat our personal giants. His story is to show that we're the ones all quivering on the sidelines. We're all there awaiting a true champion, not a coward like us. We're waiting for a real champion to step out of history and defeat sin once and for all. That's what the story of David is trying to tell us. Or what it's what it's foreshadowing in, in the context. Solomon isn't there to tell us how to deal with baby disputes. He spent the beginning of his life as a wise man who honored God and ended his life foolishly chasing after his own desires. A large part of his existence was to help us understand that much of life is about pursuing wisdom and avoiding folly. 
Uh, one more. Ruth isn't in the Bible just so we could round it out with a love story. That's not what it's there for. It is a beautiful love story that it tells, but that's not what it's there for. It's there to paint a picture of what redemption looks like so that we can see when we learn about Jesus, oh, he's a true redeemer. I know what a redeemer is because I learned about it back in Ruth. It's a pattern that's set up. On and on we could go reevaluating the stories we know and putting them back in the context we've pulled them from to see what they were intended to tell us originally. And we should do that. Um, we'll start that next week. But this is a pursuit that takes a lifetime. And it, we spend our time examining, talking with others in the body. That's how we, that's how we uh, flesh these ideas out, by reading, in, reading scripture in community. So... That is the end of my message without a very artful closing. However, uh, if you'd like to continue this conversation, I'd love to have you come back to Message Plus in room six. Uh, yeah, come back there, and, and uh, I'd love to hear your ideas, questions, thoughts, uh, if you'd like to join us. Uh, either way, I would love to see you next week as we continue this theme. Um, please keep... Uh, the kids coming back from Japuza in your prayers. And um, I think that is all. Thank you for coming. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for not only the contents of it, but the instructions on how to read it and the fact that you didn't just give us a bunch of disconnected um, lessons that we have to work our way through, but that you gave us a narrative that lets us know what reality is, what you intend how things end, and what that means for us. I thank you that part of your story is that we are not left in our failure and despair, left to die in our sins, but that there is a Savior, and that we can turn to him and have the story return as it was intended to be, where we live in eternity with you. I pray you keep all these people safe as we go home today, and that we have a wonderful and relaxing rest of this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.